hope the future generations can get this urge stay woke young and, and avenge these nerds uh. welcome back to another episode of nerds of the rounds guys it's your host sebastian anyway tone from across the hall and we got another awesome creative series for you guys on the nerds of the round you may have saw him on one of our recent lives with the comic book school crew talking about the anthology that he got to take part in was the prose editor. I got to know this guy through the creative Aftercon network, which again, he is an awesome dude, awesome writer and just, you know, all around awesome guy. I want to give it up for AA Ruben. What's up? What's up guys. What's Thanks, up? For ha- Thanks for having me. Good <laughs> to be guys, back. Yeah, Thank no, we're definitely <laughs> happy to dive in to everything, you know, you've been working on and, you know, and what you're, what you're up to and, you know, really excited. So the, we're, we're, we're going to ask you the golden question. What got you into writing in comics, Ari? Please give us the okay. origin story. So I, I write, as you guys know, I write in a variety of genres, um, comics, literary fiction, science fiction, fantasy, rhyming poetry, everything in between. Um, and actually what... The first book that got me into writing was actually The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, in, um, I read it in seventh grade. I bought it from the Scholastic Book Flyers, if you guys remember those, Scholastic Book Fair Flyers. Oh, those are the best. Yes. Those were the best. Yeah, so <laughs> they had The Hobbit in there. It was some anniversary edition. I read it, loved it, was like, you know what? Those little games I'm playing with my castle Legos and that kind of thing, maybe that could be something. So flash forward years later, I'm starting, you know, try to write. And actually I met, I met Neil Gaiman. This was around Ooh. the time that um, the one Sam, he was on tour for Sandman Endless Nights. Mm-hmm. If you remember mm-hmm. that when they did one story for each of the uh, endless and he was on tour for that. And I had also recently read the novel of uh, Stardust. So not the graphic novel that he did with Charles Vest, but the, the prose novel that he did a Stardust. So I went to see him and, you know, he did a reading from Endless Nights and he had a line. Neil Gaiman always has, you know, 500 people in the line and takes, yes. you know, you get a, you, <laughs> I had bracelet 250 something or something like that. And he's got all the thing. So I get up to the front and I tell him, I'm like, you know, this book, uh, Stardust, this is like, you know, exactly the kind of book I want to write. And he looks like we well, supposed to stay for something. He says, um, well, you know, I wrote it because I wanted to read it and nobody else was writing books like that. And that kind of, you know, gave me confidence as a young writer back when I was in my 20s that maybe maybe I could do this. You know, in terms of the uh, comic stuff, it was really also through Neil Gaiman because I had read comics as a kid. I liked Frank Miller's Daredevil. I read some Spider-Man stuff like everyone. And I read, all, you know, some of the Chris Claremont X-Men stuff, uh, all the comics that my orthodontist had. Also Thor during that time because my orthodontist had Thor. Um, some Batman because um, Batman had those nice self-contained stories where you didn't need to know. Back then, DC wasn't trying to copy Marvel and, you know, the stories were kind of standalone things where yes. you could read a Batman <laughs> yeah. story and you could just read the arc, whatever it was, like those six issues or those 12 issues. You know, so I read some comics as a kid. I like comics. Um, Then I had this idea I was trying to write, and I just couldn't make it work as a prose story, and I was thinking about it. And I had recently gotten back into comics through Neil Gaiman again, because after I read his prose stuff and then he was touring on Endless Nights, I decided, you know, I'm going to start The Sandman. I read The Sandman, and I got into, started reading Alan Moore's stuff and Garth Ennis' stuff, like that whole crew during during that time period and at the back of one of the uh sandman trade paperbacks there was a script 
okay. one of Neil Gaiman's stories. And I was like looking through it. I kind of had the idea. I'm like, you know what? This is that story that I wanted to write that I couldn't make work. I was like, maybe it's actually a graphic novel. Maybe it's a comic story. And that was kind of how I got into, uh, that's how kind of like you said, the origin story of how I got into comics. And then the rest was going to Comic-Con, going to uh, panels, learning how to do it, that kind of thing. There weren't as many resources back then. I know I talked a little bit on the last show about going to Buddy Scalera's comic book school panels, and that was a big thing for me, learning how to do it also. And, you know, I just, you know, now when I get a story idea, I write what it has to be. If it's a, if it's a prose story, if it's a comic story, if it's a poem, and whatever media play, whatever medium it needs to be, then, you know, I try to figure that out before I start, once I have the idea, and then I write... You know, I write what I think it. I write what it you, how what what I think it should be. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, like you bring up Garth Ennis, um, Neil Gaiman, and all that. Like these are like the Alan Moore. They were like the rock stars in the world of writing comics. And yeah. I mean, for me growing up, it was definitely the rock stars in art and all that and everything. So yeah. it's like it's really cool. I feel like we came through that age and all that. But to showcase your writing, you, you have a story in the book called Under New Suns. Yep. Which is just pretty dope. And it's um you write about a story about being named Triangle Alpha Three, aka Tate. Yes. And also it seems like it's 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 overall him becoming an individual. So how did you come up with this story? Of what was the thought process? What was it that you want to overall achieve with this? So th- this was a very interesting project. It's it's being put out by Skullgate Media. It's in um, pre-orders. You could pre-order the ebook now, and the a print book is coming out at the end of February, I believe, on the twenty-eighth. Um, and the process was this was different than anything else I've ever done because it was a shared world anthology, and unlike most times where you write a story and you submit it to an editor, like if I want to write, I can write a story, I send it off, submit it to a bunch of magazines, hopefully one of them accepts it, um, or you can find a way if it's long enough, or if you have a collection enough to self-publish them yourself. This was completely different. So you sent them a story you've done in the past. Mm-hmm. They decided based on that story whether to <clears throat> take you on to the team or not. And cool. so I got accepted onto the team based on the writing sample that I gave him. And then it was kind of like a long role-playing game that you played for the next <laughs> month to create the world. So if any of you guys are into Dungeons and Dragons or anything like that, oh, yeah. it's kind of like Dungeons and I know you guys do the uh, the podcast Dungeons and Dragons. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. so, a lot, 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 whole lot of Dungeons yeah. and Dragons. So this was like that in space. So okay, cool. Um, they had a game. I was all online, obviously. Um, partly because of the pandemic, but partly because it's an international group of writers. And every turn you had to, they gave you, they gave you a frame story, which is, which is done in the, which is basically what's done in the, in the book. There's a, like a, the first chapter is a comic actually that they had the frame story that there's this intergalactic war. There's a United Planetary Alliance, which is, if you think like the Federation and Star Trek, and they're facing some, you know, the, the bad guys are the swarm and Mm -hmm. um, they steal this sentient bioorganic ship um, that turns out to be alive, but they don't really know how it works. And it jumps to the other end of the galaxy and they have to try to make their way home. Mm, And the course of the game, when your turn came up, you got, you got a random prompt, um, a situation. And you were like, it's like, you know, either the first time around, everybody was creating a crew member. So you had to create a crew 
didn't necessarily for me it ended up being the one i ended up writing about but it didn't necessarily have to be the one you ended up writing about you could write about other characters that other people created um and i have the other characters in the story so you created a crew person and then you had a situation you had to depending on what you rolled you had to start a project you had to advance a project you had to you know um put something on the map like there's you know put a new planet on the map um discover something inside the ship, say something about the ship's art. There were a whole list of prompts and you didn't know what your prompt was going to be until you got it. And then you had to, so you had to create your character. You had to do whatever the prompt was. And then you had to advance all the projects by one. So you would roll. Like if I said, oh, there are, and I did this on one of my turns, there are space sharks following the ship trying to eat the ice crystals that were that were towing and now i roll my you know i roll my die and they're like okay this takes six turns before we resolve it so i get the next person gets it and after they do all their things then they say whatever happens next they have to advance that storyline one time and then the, the next person goes five turns four turns what, what you know until until the project is resolved um so we had the framework and that's how you filled in the map and the crew and all that kind of thing the second time around instead of creating a character you had to complicate somebody else's character so if say tone you created a character or sebastian next time around i would take your character and i would add something to their bio rather than create okay. a new one that's and then really by cool. the end you had this shared world <clears throat> then there was the period of now it's time to write your story that takes place within this world. <laughs> um, once, you know, once it was done, you had 5,000 words, um, which you could use all on one story like I did or divide it up into other little stories if you wanted to. Um, and everybody got to write their story. They didn't necessarily have to be completely in sync with each other, um, but there's this world building framework that you're supposed to fit into. And... Um, yeah, you could do whatever you wanted within the world that we all created together through the game. That that sounds I, that that definitely sounds like the D and D rules, and it's like yeah. it's actually kind of fantastic way of putting together an exercise and putting together a story. Um, but you also there's more in this book um, because your your daughter actually a featured artist in the book with her artwork right there. Show it off. <laughs> yes. Yes. So How there, did that feel? Hashtag that, proud uh, papa moment. Yep. <laughs> so you see that says the history of the United Planetary Alliance right there. And um, what happened was one person wrote their piece or one of their pieces in the voice of a young child. You know, it's always a thing when you make a world like this. How are you going to do the info dumping? Um, in the world building in a way. So what they did is they decided to write it as an appendix to the book, the history of how we got from Earth to the situation where this war happened. And rather than doing just like a timeline or whatever, this person decided to write it as a school like report. You would have to do a school report. And they wanted illustrations um, by a uh, an actual child they're like it'd be really cool if somebody could draw something out of crayon i'm like well my daughter really likes to draw i'll ask her if she wants to do it and <laughs> now it's her first commissioned artwork and it's, it's in the book you got octopus alien uh beings eating the earth you can see they have four tentacles on one side of the earth even though they're um even though they're octopuses because the other four are on the back 
So, so she put <laughs> she put a lot of thought into into that. So talking about that whole creative that writing process and bringing in your story, the trials that Triangle Alpha Three goes through, and him becoming his own being is that something someone else wrote for him or no, that's actually that's actually what i wrote um that okay. i told you this ended up being my character i ended up liking him and deciding to oh just kind of running story. with it okay yeah just running with the character that i created on my turn which i don't know if it was the intent when we created it but it just sort of turned <laughs> out that way and so i pictured like if you're you've been thrown across you're part of a collective hive mind so think of something like the Borg or something like that. Yeah, that's what I yeah, that's yeah. what I got. Yeah, yeah, something like that. I mean, there's other hive minds in science fiction, but that's one everybody knows. So you're kind of a collective hive mind. If you think of that episode, there's that episode of Star Trek where um, with Hugh, I know you know um, where they they try to rehabilitate one of the Borg and he has to come back, um, you know, turn into an individual. And I thought that's a really interesting idea. That episode ended up being more of a Picard story than a Hugh story. The Hugh was kind of like a subplot because it was really about Picard dealing with his PTSD from when he was Locutus of Borg in those famous mm-hmm. episodes. And yes, Hugh becoming human and making friends with Geordi, that was a nice little storyline. But the main storyline, I think, was, was the Picard storyline. I was thinking, you know, that would be kind of a cool thing to explore because you have to have a method of communication if you're a hive species, right? This, it's, you know, there's a transmission of it and um, of the thoughts of the collective mind. And if you were thrown that far across the galaxy, you might lose the connection with your, um, with your species. So that was, that was where the idea started. And I had originally wanted to, where I originally planned it was as he got closer, he would hear them coming in and out, which does happen a little bit in the story, but it ends up, I don't write with an outline. I'm sort of, I'm more of a, uh, a panster or a gardener, if you know, like there's two kinds of writers, <laughs> plotters and plant pansters. So yeah. it, it, the story goes where it wants to go. Like it tells yeah, yeah, me yeah. where it wants to go once it starts. So it didn't end, ended up going that way, but it is about how you would create yourself as an individual if you were suddenly cut off from the hive mind while still having to do your duties on the ship. And in the game building, actually, one of the things that I didn't write about the character, but I had to contend with when I was writing the story was that the original captain of the ship dies and um, they elect Triangle to be the captain um, about a third of the way through the journey. And now he's dealing with this. He's dealing with not having a hive mind. He's also the captain of the ship. There's all sorts of weird six-dimensional space going on. Uh, space sharks, as I mentioned before. Um, I will say the space sharks threw me. I'm reading. Yeah, I was like, I was like, when the hell did the space sharks come in? Yeah, but it probably, yeah. I'm sure it comes up in the earlier yeah, stories yeah, too. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they, um, you know, the ship is pregnant um that that's also yeah (laughs) you got a lot going on in this chapter it was no no it didn't mean and you see it's about two-thirds of the way through the book so there's a lot i was like you know what science fiction i'm just gonna keep it moving yeah (laughs) i mean they say it's not even science fiction it's space opera the thing is it's space opera which is more like star wars where okay we got a hyperdrive how does it work who knows she'll make 0.5 past light speed Okay. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're we're so, gonna go beyond light speed. That's it. You know, we're yep. just breaking science. That's like you know. So so they said space opera to begin with. So you don't have to get overly into the physics of it. You know. So it started with that. Now that the thing that was interesting to me when I wrote it was that I was thinking, and this was something that I was able to do because of that process I described before, where 
I was able to take more risks with the story holistically mm-hmm. because I was already in. Because, you know, where I might not submit a story like that to a publisher called, especially one who I don't know, who I hadn't worked with before, unless it's an experimental type journal. You know, this this uh, publisher, I, I mean, I saw the call um, for it on uh, on Twitter, um, which was a vibrant writing community on Twitter. Um, and a lot of the people, some of the people who I had known from other publishing things were involved in it, who had done the first volume, which was a fantasy story that they created based off of a similar game. And so I was like, yeah, this sounds like a cool project. I want to be in it. I wouldn't necessarily take that much risk with the language. Um, but because I was already in, you know, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to try to do something different. And if you've ever read something like A Clockwork Orange or Robert Heinlein's uh, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress um, or Alan Moore's first prose novel, not the Jerusalem, which, you know, The Spider Jerusalem, but Jerusalem, which is just like, you know, 1200 pages, but he wrote a novel called Voice from the Fire. I was thinking that this character, you know, he might have trouble with certain idioms because he can't you know the high minds encountered humans before he hasn't necessarily doesn't have as necessarily as much experience his native language might not have articles might have different ways they do tenses and it's something that i've noticed um in my career as a teacher um when i've been when i've worked with students who are english as a second language students from different backgrounds the students who are you know, let's say native Spanish speakers have very yeah. different things that they struggle with compared to the students who are, say, native Mandarin speakers, because the languages are different. So, you know, I was thinking this is, you know, these are Spanish and English are on the same language tree. They're both uh, Roman languages. Mandarin is on a different language tree, but but we're all humans and we you know, we're, we're somewhat related in this. This is somebody from an alien species, a uh, bug-like alien species. Imagine how different their language is. And yeah. well, part and- of as he goes through this journey of discovering his individuality, it, he's trying to learn how to speak the common language, which, which is basically English because the book's written in English. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> But the way that he tries to you know, even in his pronouns where everybody referred to, he used to say we, yeah. because everything was the voice of the collective. Like they asked him, and yeah. that was one of the advantages of having his species on the ship is they're great tactically because they remember everything. So the captain would say, would ask him for advice and he would say, we think, you know, we should do whatever it is. We, we should, you know, move the left flank or go to, to make the jump to whatever. But now he's I and he struggles. Should I be I or we? You know, how do people react to me when I when I switch that when um, he has trouble with conditional tenses and, uh, you know, would, could, that type of thing is difficult for him. Uh, He has, you know, where he's thinking at a very high level and he's clearly a very smart guy. But part of this communication, especially when he gets under pressure, the language also breaks down at various points. So it improves as he gets more experience than this parts where, where it breaks down. So I was able to take more risks with that type of thing, which I felt, you know, that's one of the things that I like most about the story. And I think that it came out really well um, doing that. But it also makes it a little bit of a more difficult story. And uh, I could see that it might not be, you know, necessarily for, for everyone, but it does make it different and unique. 
No, it, it was very yeah. unique in terms of reading the story and then hearing <clears throat> him come in his own individuality. I mean, you, you I mean, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but you put that guy through hell. I'm just going to be honest with that. Like, you're just throwing stuff at this dude. I was like, like, what else is he going to deal with? I'm like, he's trying to figure out who he is, but then you got this and you got that. It's like, like, come on, dude. Um, but but, there's um, a little bit of, you know, and also like not to spoil too much, but like the reactions of the other members of the crew when he becomes yeah. a captain. So like he's dealing with being captain and then learning common and then also potentially some low ball racism species. And with the fact that this is the captain yeah. and having to deal with those other members of the crew. So like, there's a whole bunch of other uh, crap that he is dealing with that, you know, you may not just think about cause you're just kind of going through him as a character becoming uh, one for himself did you create how the current collective is? Was that also your brainchild? The collect the current collective? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The current collective, yeah, because th- that was part of my that was part of my turn and with the uh with the character. Yeah. I'm not I don't think anybody went he does appear in other stories, but I don't think anybody else went as deep into the uh into the character collective. Yeah. I, I thought it I thought it was really cool the use of geometry in their hierarchy. And the fact that like the younger, the younger, ver- the younger ones in this collective are uh, like a two line uh, or a single line, but then you have higher lines or like higher shapes, yes. uh, hexagon, octagon, decagon. Like I thought that was really cool. And the, the idea of like, you know, bringing in the vertices and all this, I, I thought that was just really fascinating. I, didn't, I never thought about that. Cause you think of like triangle being the strongest shape, but like, no, there's, there's more beyond that. And, there's you know, we're shapes. just, you, there's yeah. more shapes. There's infinite number of shapes. Right. And it's just, well, I mean, this is yeah. something. This is something um, that I think that you know you have a good opportunity to do in science fiction. And one of the good things about science fiction is that people can, you know, people. We see the world in a certain way, and we see a certain mm-hmm. world a certain way because of our background and our culture and all of these other things, and also because of the way we are as humans. I mean, I've, I've read an article that we the reason we use base 10 for math is because we have 10 fingers, and like we start kind of like if we had six fingers <laughs> yeah. on each. I, I've read about that too, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, if you had six fingers, you might have a base 12 system or something like that. You also, part of the phenomenal anthology that came out with comic yes. book school which you were prose right um prose editor with as well one of the stories i want to touch up on from that is mr stupendous which robbie was one of my favorites in there because and it was funny too before um i looked at the anthology before we got to talk to you guys about it I was having that conversation with people like we want to see superheroes in a normal situation yeah. and setting all that and i you answered that with mr stupendous are we looking at future books? Are we looking at future stories? Are we going to see more of Mr. Stupendous world? Tell us uh, more about Mr. Stupendous and what we can expect from this. Guy. Yes. So, so yes, the, the short answer is yes. Um, <laughs> Ariel, who's the artist is working on a couple of shorts from, uh, from Mr. Stupendous a little, so I see it like we're going to have a few that that story is eight pages from the eight page challenge and um, which was a great anthology, you know, um, buddy, Scalera and Aaron, Don- Aaron Donnelly issued the eight-page challenge from uh, from Comic Book School, and we have this great anthology that's free to download from the Comic Book School site. Um, and yes, my story in there, my comic story is Mister Stupendous, which tells the everyday life of a superhero, where 
he's the most powerful man in the world, but his problems are all too human. So he's up all night fighting crime. So he falls asleep at his desk at work the next day, you know, but he needs that job because, you know, he's a superhero. If you're the bad guy, you could just, after you, you know, beat someone up, you take their wallet, whatever, right? But, but you're the <laughs> yeah, not, not, not everyone's Bruce Wayne, you know, you can't just you can't do finance that, right? your hobby with your, right. with your business. You know, you can't, you can't do that. So, um, you know, so how are you going to, you're going to get by your wife's getting kind of suspicious. You're out all night, like every <laughs> night. And it's like, you're not telling her why. So, you know, this, this could cause problems in your, in your marriage. Luckily you have superpowers. You might be able to fly to France to get a really nice bottle of wine. There you go. There you go. Just, 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 yeah. just, you know, changing <laughs> a phone booth. It's, you know, no phone booths anymore. No, there were That's not. not. That's what it's like. Yeah. You know, you change you change. You know, these types of things, right? These these are problems that might come up in the everyday life of a superhero. So it's kind of spoofy. It's kind of episodic, and I kind of so that it's like the seed story that kind of introduces you to him, and then we're working on a couple of like little newspaper shorts type things, like one page comedic <laughs> things. So you know, different situations that are gonna. They're, they're just one-page jokes, um, kind of similar to what you're doing with the, with the damn heroes, but not exactly because it's, <laughs> um, it's, it's, it is meta, but it's not quite as meta as that. It's more because it takes place in the world. Um, but, you know, we're going to explore the effects of, uh, say, pigeons on the superhero in the city, you know, these oh, types of things. So, I, yes. you know, but those like little one-page things. So there'll be like an eight page story then we're working on this one page thing. And then there'll be like another eight page story and maybe a one or two page little newspaper strip type thing. And we're going to kind of piece it together like that. So it's still in the early stages. Um, Ariel, that was the first story that Ariel and I worked on. So, you know, it takes, takes a while as you know, in this world to, uh, to get things done. Um, well, one thing. Out. Shout out yeah. to Ariel for the artwork, though. Yes, I mean she's yes, phenomenal she with did. the artwork. She did, she did, she did a phenomenal job on it, um, and we had a really good working relationship um, working with it. So um, it was. She has an animation background, oh. uh, where she she went to SVA for uh, for animation, and she brings a lot of that to the to the artwork. So um, there are panels where there's a lot of motion things like that that she's able to do because of her animation background how fun was it for you to think of situations to put mr stupendous in you know it's a character i've had this idea for a long time i think i told you about it back in the uh bar like after new york comic-con like to be like four or five years ago where i was i was thinking about this and for some reason i never it was one of those ideas where I never found the right person to do it. And it just sort of it was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. That's funny, you know, but it never actually happened until this. And then, you know, so I had so many years of thinking of what kind of situations the character gets into. And, and for and for um, people who haven't read it yet, he has this little catchphrase, which is the um, kind of sarcastic, stupendous, like, yeah, um, when bad things happened to him like they you know um so it's like thinking of things that could end with that phrase stupendous and <laughs> you know with all these things with all these superhero you know in over that time the superhero genre has just gotten so big and so mainstream yeah. you know um my wife who 
not really into comics. She likes other, loves Star Wars, you know, loves that kind of thing. She was like, oh yeah, over the last year since, because she watched all the Marvel movies, like every one of them. She's like, why are we seeing this? Like, you know, and, you know, it's getting to be the point where people who aren't, you know, who aren't even into comics like we are, right, know all these characters and know all these things. And even in like super serious you know, and they're not super serious. The Marvel movies, some of them are funny, and you know, the DC movies tend to be darker and super serious, yeah. super serious <laughs> and poorly written. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you know, um, but there's, um, you know, even even though there's certain situations where I'm watching it and I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, like in that first Avengers movie, Iron Man's up through that portal, right, and he's just saved, and he's like. Dead. And yeah, it's it's the Christ pose where he's falling down and he sacrificed himself so that everybody else can live. It's classic, you know, um, Western canon um, Christ figure stuff. But the Earth's continuing to rotate right while all this is going on. So assuming. I can suspend disbelief. Yeah, he's, he's a guy in an iron suit. You know, there's a Hulk he he, in Gamer Race. You know, how is he landing in the same place? That, that's a long way to fall. Like, he would land somewhere in the middle of the ocean if the gravity was even strong enough, you know, to get him back. You know, things like this. I feel, you it's know. continuity. continuity. Now, you know, blame, blame it. Blame it on the Infinity It's just Infinity Stones. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like things like that when I see it and then then it goes into my head and I'm like, you know, that could be something, something that we could work something in with with Mr. Stupendous at some point. (laughs) It's like like, like the idea with the phone booths, Um, you know, I had I just walking in the city one day and like, you know, thinking about it, like. Where would Superman change now? You know? <laughs> yeah. That's... Once the phone booths don't even close, they're like half open and like yeah, there's no like, alleys. It's like you, you see yourself like from the, uh, you know, they only cover up to your waist and it's no, there's no, I mean, they, they were always clear, which, which was something that bothered me yeah. to begin with. Like anyone could look in. But, you know, you got all these guys brooding on rooftops. Like there's a pigeon idea came in. Like, you know, what happens when you, you know, what happens when you fly to work and it rains, you know, like, yes, you know, you got to, yeah, it's great. I can fly everywhere, but, but it, it's going to rain. Like, you know, it's not always, you know, especially because they all take place in New York, you know, or, or equivalent anyway, we're not Metropolis City or Gotham, it's New York. Yeah. And you're, you're going to you get know, bugs in the teeth. You know, the, like, just, yeah, you know, all these types of things, when you start thinking along those lines, and I write a lot of parody Anyway, it's one of the things that I write a lot of, um, and so we'll talk about my play in, in a little bit. But you know, I, I do write in that in that kind of comedic style. And one of the things you're just looking for is things that are just logically inconsistent, you know. And that's where you have the room to get it in. You mentioned that you are a playwright. You did a play. You wrote a play called "At the Festival," which is a tragic comedy influenced by Samuel Beckett. Monty Python. I want to, you know, get uh, detail of um, the play, but also to what some of the differences in writing a play versus writing a comic, and are they similar? Yes. Okay. So at the festival is a. It's again, it's another spoof similar to Mr. Stupendous. Um, not about superheroes, but this one. I have a lot of friends who are more serious playwrights than I am, so I've seen a lot of theater festivals where you go and you see. A bunch of plays and much like any other genre there's certain tropes that happen 
at every one of these festivals <laughs> that you go to where you see the same play over and over and over again. And it kind of makes fun of that a little bit in, I guess, kind of a loving way. Um, and it starts out, yeah, there's two actors who've been part of the play festival, but oh no, they forgot their lines. And now they have to make it up as they go along. And of course, they're both seasoned pros, so they, they, they can get through their 15 minutes or whatever they've been given by the, uh, by the festival. And, you know, from there, it kind of, kind of gets out of hand. So one similarity between a comic and a play is that they are both dialogue heavy. So as opposed to the prose stuff that we we're talking about earlier, there's no room for description in, in really either one of them. Like you know, the description is carried by the actors. There isn't scenery in at the festival because it's black box theater, but by the actors and the props and all that kind of thing in the stage directions, like you don't get to, you know, there's no, it was a dark and stormy night to use the, the old cliche. There's no, um, Tom was, was talking about Lord of the Rings before we got on there. There's no five pages on the forest of Mirkwood and all of the, uh, you know, you, you can't do that. There's no, like, they, they make fun of uh, of George R. R. Martin for describing everything everybody ate in Game of Thrones. <laughs> like, there was just that great song, the, 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 uh, George R. R. Martin, Write and Write Faster from, from a few years ago, which is now outdated because he still hasn't finished the book. Um, I'll talk about it. Yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, he one of the lines that saw six page descriptions of every last meal. And that stuff is great. And we love him for it. And we love Tolkien for being Tolkien. And I know I like Charles Dickens and a lot of the old writers who do that. Both comics and plays, you don't you don't do that. There's no interior monologue. So like when I'm going back to um to Tate and Triangle Alpha Three from that story, a lot of it takes place inside of his head as he's figuring it out. You don't have that. The perspective in a play is what we call third-person dramatic. And it's called dramatic because it's a play. You can write like that in, in prose also. So your point of view, you're not in any character's heads unless you have long soliloquies like Shakespeare had, which you don't really have time for in a one-act play, and they're kind of, kind of considered an antiquated form. Um, but for the most part, you have to find out about the character indirectly through dialogue and through action. Um, and in that way, it's very similar to a comic book. So in a both a comic and in a play, you are relying on that perspective. You're relying a lot on the visual aspect of it, the facial expressions, the way the characters interact with each other and what the characters say in those speech bubbles or what they say in their lines in the play. A difference would be is that in comic books, you kind of have an unlimited budget, which you have to be very conscious <laughs> of in a play, yes. especially a small play, because you can't have big special effects like you have in movies where, you know, things don't explode. I mean, they, they can if you get to a certain level, but even in like a Broadway <laughs> play, the scenery and especially the lighting is important, but it's not going to be the same as it would be in a movie or a book or anything like that. And yeah. it's not going to be the same as in a comic book. The other thing is it's a, it's a living medium as opposed to a static medium, which is, which gives you two different, two different types of things. So in a comic, you can change camera angles and you can look at things from multiple perspectives. In a play, it's from the perspective of the audience. The audience isn't moving around. I can't take the audience up and show them a bird's eye view of what's going on on the stage. When you, when you do a play, you're relying on the actors 
and the director when it gets performed. Whereas when you do a comic, it's sort of the artist who fulfills, you know, the, the artist is the performer. Yeah, yeah it's the yeah. performer. So the characters are performed by the by the artist and you can go back and forth um, with the artist you can talk about how the these things work when you do a play it's kind of out of your hands a little bit once you once you give it and there do you hope that you get the right actors and talent and the actors bring so much to it just like the artist brings a lot to it but it's a little bit of a um, it's a little bit of a different process in that way when I write a comic, You'll notice that in my scripts, there's fewer words per bubble than in a lot of, um, uh, a lot of comics. other comics that you see. And that's, that's a conscious choice. And I try to limit it to a certain amount of words per bubble and words per panel because each, each word has to carry a lot of weight in the company has to be a reason for it another story featured in a book which is on amazon it's called tales from the, the dream zone you wrote a story called light of my afterlife can you give yes. us a synopsis of that story yes. um this is a story it's a classic ghost tale like a 19th century style charles dickens ghost tale Ooh. um you got a young girl who was who's a ghost haunting a hospital room which happens to be built on the same hospice that she died of, of a plague many, many years before. And it's all in her head. And she wants to haunt this. She has to haunt it. And the thing is, she has to get someone to notice her. The problem is there's no shadows. You can't be a ghost without shadows. You know, um, there's nowhere, there's no flickering. When she was alive, the candles flickered and, you know, they, the light of the candlelight is really good for haunting. you got the stone walls are flickering. Now you got these bright fluorescent hospital lights. There's nowhere to uh, haunt anyone. Um, and she's got to figure out how to get into the electricity and how to get into the hospital equipment in order to get the patient and the doctor to notice her. And um, she's working through it. Um, I don't know if you guys saw, I had a guest blog with the publisher with Flying Catcher Press where I wrote a little bit about my process the for this story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I got the, uh, the process story, um, yeah, how to turn your writer's block into a building block for your writing. And one of the techniques that, that the technique that I discussed there was something that I learned from a writer called Jessica Lee Richardson. who's was a short story writer. She was one of the presenters at the Rutgers writing conference a few years ago. She's a short story writer. I went to her panel and she's like, when you get stuck, shut down your computer, your notebook, whatever, and go take a walk. And whatever you're stuck on, you're probably just stuck on either an emotion of a character or something you're trying to describe. And whatever that sticking point in the story is, just take a walk and try to find all of the things that are like that and the different ways you can describe it and write it down in your notebook. In my story, it was light. So I was looking for all the different ways, the light coming through the trees and the way that the light reflected off the windshield of the car or the way that it kind of sparkles in those little rocks on the sidewalk. And the great thing is, is not only does it get you beyond your writing block, which is, which is something that all writers deal with and all creatives deal with. I know artists have art block as well. It's, it's, it's something that, that we deal with. So not only does it get you beyond that, but it also gives your story a consistency in imagery. So in this story, the light, it ended up being focused around those two things, around the fluorescent lights in the hospital, the modern fluorescent lights, and the candlelight 
um, from Wendry and the contrast between the two, between the flickering candles and the constant harsh electric hospital light. And what it does is it gives your story a an internal consistency because of the metaphors you're using and because of the imagery you're using. I found out that you do Jeet uh, Kune Do. Yes, that's and true. I believe you uh, you're equivalent to a black belt in Jeet Kune Do. Yes, equivalent to a third degree black belt. That's it's third rank, which cool. is, which is just instructor. Yeah. And there's lots of questions in, about that, but I wanted to know how does martial arts play into your writing process? I know there's a lot of discipline in regards to martial arts. Do you is there do you get anything from it? Does it play a role? You know, if you could just speak to that before yep. we before we wrap up. Yes, a hundred percent. Yes, in, in a whole variety of ways. Um, people have told me I'm disciplined in a lot of areas of my life, which I'm not. You know, um, when I think a lot of that does come from martial arts. Um, but beyond that, I think one of the concepts that I got most out of martial arts um, from my Jeet Kune Do teacher, you know, specifically from him, um, was is the concept of the difference between practice and performance. And this is something that's affected me not only as a writer, but as a teacher, as a martial artist, as a coach, when I, when I coach sports and this type of thing, but it's, it's applicable to writing. And I think it's applicable to any creative process It work for the artist as well. And it's something that we so often forget. People often ask you, what are you working on? And they expect you to say, yeah, I'm writing my novel and I have my it's going to come out or I'm working on such and such a comic book and it's going to, you know, it's going to come out next and thing. But there are times where you are practicing things to build attributes, which is a big thing in Jeet Kune Do and Bruce Lee's philosophy, where there are attributes you need as a martial artist. You need speed, you need power, you need, um, you need timing. And there are ways to work on these things. And people see, they say, oh yeah, there, there's the fight. You go and you spar and you see whether, whether you win or lose. But when you set up as a martial artist, there are techniques that you work on or exercises that you work on that aren't performance techniques. If you take something like a boxer and a boxer hitting a speed bag, no one walks into the boxing ring for their fight going like this, you know, like they do against the speed. They, but, but no one questions that the boxer uses the speed bag to build hand speed, to build timing, to mm -hmm. build rhythm. You know, they all jump rope to build rhythm and, you know, different types of footwork exercises that we do. And I think it, it applies to writing also where people don't practice technique enough. They say you have to write every day, which is good advice as far as it goes, but are you getting better? Maybe it's better to do something where you focus for a couple of weeks just how to write a simile or work on a specific point of view, or take an author that you like, like I was saying Neil Gaiman before. Maybe I take a Neil Gaiman book off my shelf, try to write a paragraph in my story as if I was Neil Gaiman. Whatever aspect, whatever it is that you're doing is to find those exercises that build your attributes and that build your, um, build your skills that don't necessarily make it into the final product, but it'll make me a better writer to do that when I sit down to write my own writing because I'm expanding my toolbox, which is another thing we talk about in Jikundo, which is what's in your toolbox, what, what can you actually use? I want to definitely shout out to the fact that in 2021, you have a story coming out in Freedom Comic Story with um, Nerd Nations Presents. Um, then July 2021, The Widow's Walk, um, a gothic poem, and Love Letters to Poe, a journal yep. for gothic literature. So 
definitely going to give you guys more updates on that. So keep following Ari to get those updates. So again, this has been another awesome episode creative series featuring AA Ruben. This has been your boy, Sebastian. Anybody tone from across the hall. We'll see you guys on the internet. Peace. <laughs>